Well, why don't you join me back in John 11? So we are, after about a month off, back in the Gospel of John. I was thinking as we were taking the Lord's Supper and as we were singing, not only what a very great privilege it is that we draw near to worship like this, but also what a very serious business it is. The worship of God is serious business. And one of the things you should pray for yourself and for us as a congregation is when we we come together, we never take that lightly, uh, that we're never just seeking to be entertained or to... You know, put in our time, but that, that we are engaging because God has promised to meet with His people. He's promised to manifest His glory as we are gathered together to, to come and, 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 and use His Word by the Holy Spirit and use the fellowship of our singing together psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so it is a very serious thing that we would gather in His name. We would hear His Word. We would sing together. We would encounter Him. We'd be reminded of the gospel. And I appreciate uh, Kyle this morning leading us in that reminder of the gospel as we took the Lord's Supper. I mean, my my own soul needed to hear that again. To be reminded of what Christ has done and that it is all about Christ. And I'm not coming here to get worked up or um, I'm not bringing Him something He needs. I'm coming and receiving again Those, those gospel words of truth. And so, praise the Lord. So, Father, we pray and ask that you would own this, your word, as we come back to John's gospel and we see again Jesus, our master, our redeemer. So we hear again uh, his words of truth. We watch to see what he alone can do. And we ask that the hearing, the reading of your word would awaken faith in our hearts um, to see him as he is, to trust him for who he is and to gain a greater understanding of why He's worthy of all of our trust and of all praise. And we ask this in Your name. Amen. John 11, and really if you've not done so, you ought to read the whole chapter of John sometime this week. We're going to spend about three weeks in this story of the raising of Lazarus, but this morning we're going to look at verses 1 to 16, because there's just too much here to try to take in at one sitting. So John chapter 11, verse 1, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And so the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Uh, When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. 
Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. This is God's word. One of my jobs as your pastor is to help prepare you to endure times of grief on your way to ultimate glory. You see, we love the glory story. We love the good times, the celebrations. But the grief? Not so much. And that's one reason false prophets are very quick to offer the glory story with the promise that grief can be avoided altogether in this life. That, that the pain and the sorrow doesn't have to be a part of your life as a Christian if, if you'll just pray this prayer or, or do this particular thing. But, dear one, you understand that is a lie. And a big part of maturing in faith is learning that we're in a process right now of moving from grief to glory. But the grief must be endured first here and now in this life as we fix our eyes on the promise of Christ and coming glory. And we see that reality played out here in the death of Lazarus, this dear friend of Jesus. Where rather than shielding his friends from the sorrow and grief of death, Jesus will lead them through it. And He'll lead them in a way that by the end, they're going to gain a clearer, sweeter view of who He really is. And so let's look at this this climactic event in the earthly ministry of Jesus. And this really is a, a great turning point in John's Gospel from Him sort of giving us pictures of Jesus' miraculous power at work through the seven signs that He does in John's Gospel to, to, to moving us then to Christ's own death, burial, and resurrection. And so the first thing we see here in John 11 is that for those who hope in Christ, earthly sorrows will come but they will not have the last word. Notice how John begins introducing us here to this this family, these friends of his who are going to experience grief. Verse 1 says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, or perfume, and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And so three siblings here in Bethany, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, all living in that same little town just about two miles outside of Jerusalem. But you'll notice that when John introduces them to us here, he, he does so in a way that he pretty much assumes we already know who at least Mary and Martha are. I mean, he says... You know, Bethany, the the village of Mary and Martha, the the same Mary who anointed Jesus' feet and and wiped them with her hair. As if we're supposed to say, oh yeah, them. But what's interesting is, John hasn't actually mentioned them before this point. Uh, He's not going to mention them, in fact, until here. He won't even tell us about Mary and the washing of Jesus' feet until the next chapter, John 12. So... Why does he just assume that we already know who these people are? Well, a couple of things going on here. First of all, you may remember John assumes as he's writing his gospel that you and I have already read at least parts of the other gospels. 
Now remember, John's Gospel is the last of the four Gospels to be written, and the others had already made their rounds for, for a couple of decades. And in those other Gospels, there is the story of this friendship of Jesus with Mary and Martha, and the story also of what Mary did in washing and anointing the feet of Jesus. And so John knows we should have already read about that. In fact, it was well known in the early church, as he's writing this, that these had been close friends and followers of Jesus. Matthew, in fact, will, will tell us that whenever Jesus and his disciples came to Jerusalem, that it was in Bethany that they would stay. Again, Bethany is just about two miles outside the gates of Jerusalem, a convenient place to lodge without actually being in the hustle and bustle of the city. The point of all this is to remind us that these are good friends of Jesus uh, part of that larger group of disciples among the twelve. We always think of the twelve disciples, but there's a larger group, and, and they're part of that larger group. These are, these are people who loved Jesus and trusted Him, and verse 5 tells us these are people that Jesus Himself loved as well. And so when their brother Lazarus is sick, when he's fallen deathly ill like this, it just makes sense, doesn't it, that they're going to call for Him. Verse 3, so the sisters sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, what do you think they expect Jesus to do when he hears that message? Clearly, they expect him to drop everything and come immediately. I mean, they know he loves them. That's been clear with this friendship that they, that they share. He's a good friend. And second, they know He has power to heal. They've, they've no doubt seen it themselves. And so it, it just makes sense that they're going to call on Him. Lord, the one you love is sick. Of course He'll come. Of course that's how He's going to do it. You know, we often bring that kind of thing into our prayers when we call upon Jesus and our need, don't we? Lord... This is how you're going to answer. Lord, it just makes sense that you're going to do it this way. How else would you do it? I mean, Lord, so, so here's the plan. And when, as very often happens, He doesn't do it as we expected, we get disappointed, frustrated, maybe even angry, because Jesus didn't do what we thought should have been done. Jesus does not do as they expect. But then notice what his initial response is. And now he's speaking to the disciples, so he's instructing. He's always instructing. He wants them to see something. Read it, verse 4. So when he hears this word, Jesus then turns to the disciples and says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, now what do you make of that? Because again, if you know this story at all, you know Lazarus is going to die. So, so is Jesus wrong? Did he make a mistake? Or does he want us to see something very important here? Notice his wording again. This illness does not lead to death, or, or maybe better we could say this illness does not end with death. 
This illness isn't going pros, is the word there, toward death. It's not going to terminate at this point of death. He's he's not saying that, that death will not be involved in this story, but that death will not be the end point of this story. Because death's going to come. Sorrow and grief will show up through this death. But they're not going to be the end point. The end point's not going to be death. The end point's going to be glory. Now, this is important to see because, well, Christian, the same thing is true in your life. If, If anybody tells you you can escape all the grief and pain that are part of this world by praying this particular prayer or sending money to this particular preacher or any other silly thing like that, please understand they are lying to you. Have nothing to do with them. Sorrow and grief are going to be a part of our lives. Uh, Jesus never said, Jesus never promised, you're not going to face sorrow. In fact, He said the opposite, didn't He? In this world, you're going to have trouble. There's going to be grief. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be pain. There will be tears. But I've overcome the world. So notice what He does say again, verse 4. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It's not going to terminate in death. It is for the glory of God. That's its purpose, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In my hands, in other words, death will not be the end, glory will. Okay, so what's glory? Glory in Scripture is is the manifestation of God's greatness and goodness to us. It's God's greatness being shown to us in a way that we can see it and rejoice in it. Uh, Just as you might see the sun's rays uh, streaming down from the clouds with with beauty and warmth to to warm your soul on a cold day, so we are allowed to see God's grace and goodness streaming down to us in, in the cold of our grief and suffering to warm us and to show us that there is hope beyond the clouds, that He reigns. So Jesus is saying, "In in my hands, this illness will not result ultimately in death. It's going to result in something better and brighter than mere healing. At the end of this, there's going to be glory. I'm going to put you in a place where you're able to see my glory manifested to you and rejoice in it. Here's what you need to understand. It is more important to God that you see Christ for who He is than that you be comfortable here and now. It is more important to Him that you see Him and rejoice in Him than that you feel comfortable. In fact, He will take away your comfort and all your easy answers and put you through grief if that's what it takes to see it. Because His greater goal is to manifest His glory to you, to show you who He is so that you can trust Him more and rejoice in Him no matter what's happening. Oh, He wants above all for you to see and rejoice in Him. And so, the bad news is, you're going to have grief in this world. It can't be avoided. The good news is, the grief you experience in Him, it's not random, it's not pointless, or purposelessness, or purposeless, that's a hard word, It has a goal to reveal God's glory. 
Second thing we see in this story, this narrative, is that the Lord's delays then in answering prayer are not evidence of His lack of love. Verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when He heard that Lazarus was ill, He stayed two days longer in the place where He was. Now again, we're told Jesus loves this family. Now why why are we told that? We already know they're friends, so why are we told so explicitly Jesus loves this family? Well, it's because we're going to need to keep that in mind when we see what Jesus does next because what He does next isn't going to look like love at first. Again, what do the sisters expect is going to happen as soon as He receives word, your good friend is sick? They expect Him to come running. What does He do instead? Verse 6, So when He heard this, He heard the news, Lazarus is sick, sick unto death. He stayed two days longer in the place where He was. And in that two days, Lazarus dies. Now what do you make of that? Now I read some commentaries who said, well, you know, even if Jesus set out immediately, He would have made it in time. He was four days' journey away over in Batania, so Lazarus would have died anyway. But I think that completely misses the point. These friends send an urgent message, Lord, come quickly, your friend is about to die. And when Jesus hears that message, He does nothing. They called, and He didn't come. Not at first. Not in time. Now what do you do with that faith-wise? And by the way, I think John wants you to struggle with that here. Because if I'm Martha and Mary in that moment, this doesn't feel like love. I mean, isn't that what they're going to say when Jesus shows up? This doesn't feel like love. This feels like neglect. Lord, we called, but You didn't come. That's what they're going to say when He does finally show up. In verse 21, Martha's going to look at Him and say, Lord, if You'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Verse 32, Mary's despondent. Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, I want you to feel the pain and bewilderment they're experiencing at this moment. See, they don't know how this story ends. All they know is they cried and He wasn't there. And... I want you to see that because we really like our faith to be neat and tidy with all the little questions answered. But but in the living of it, it is so often not that way. These girls are hurt. It doesn't make any sense to them that Jesus would do them this way. You ever feel that way? Is your theology of God big enough to handle times of unanswered prayer? You say, well, God always answers prayer. Yes, yes, of course He does in time, one way or, or the other. But sometimes He answers no. Other times there are delays from our perspective. Often His answers are not what we expected. So can you handle that? I mean, what do you do in those times when His action, or in this case, inaction, when His delay feels like neglect? You go back to verse 5. You go back to the clear statements of God's Word and you anchor your faith there. Remember where this begins, verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There's the statement of truth. 
That is the truth, not their experience at the moment. Here's, here's the danger. Don't try to understand God based on your experience alone. Experience would tell these women right here, Jesus doesn't care for us. But God's Word declares clearly Jesus loves them all deeply. In fact, it uses that word agape, that self-sacrificing, uh, wonderful, infinite love of God. The, the Word assures us that He's working here even in this terrible moment of delay to reveal Himself and to show His love in a way they would otherwise never be able to see. But they don't understand that right now. And this is where faith comes in. Faith hopes in the promise of Christ's love despite the appearance of present circumstance. Faith clings to the word of His promise and waits for Him to fulfill it, knowing that He will. In fact, here's something that's interesting in this text. The way John puts this here, he's not saying, Jesus loved this family, but nevertheless He waited two days, as if love and waiting were somehow contradictory. What it says is, Jesus loved this family, therefore He waited two days. Un, therefore. In other words, it's because He loved them that He waited two days. The waiting is not from neglect. The waiting itself is motivated by His love. Because He loved them, He waits two days before coming. Now how does that make sense? And from a purely earthly perspective, I suppose it doesn't. Because this delay is going to bring all kinds of grief and pain into their lives. But from a heavenly perspective, from the perspective of God's Word, from the perspective of faith and the promises of God, those two days are going to set them up to see His glory and to enter a deeper level of trust than could otherwise be possible. Again, it is more loving for Jesus to come to us in our pain and show us His glory than for Him to keep us from the pain in the first place. Because it is in that place of pain that His glory will be most clearly seen. See, we just want Him to prevent the pain. Think about your prayers this past year. How many times have they been, make it go away? We want Him to... to, to, to prevent the pain, which He could do. But then we would miss all that He plans to give us and can only give us in this life through that place of suffering. And so we rest by faith in the hope that His timing is perfect and His motive is love for those who trust Him. And, and friend, you just have to anchor your soul in that truth right now. If you're not in any pain or suffering right now, God bless you. But you need to anchor your soul in this truth because it is coming. Only after two days have passed does Jesus then call His disciples to Him in verses 7 and 8. Then after this He said to His disciples, Let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to Him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going to go there again? The disciples are surprised by this announcement that they're turning, going back to Judea. Why? Well, they remember why they left in the first place. Back in chapter 10, verse 31, if you glance back at it, the religious leaders had tried to stone Jesus again for the second time. They tried to kill Him. And so the place where they are now, Batania, uh, was far enough away from Jerusalem to be safe. Going back to Judea will be hazardous. And so they're thinking, why would you do that? They don't know Lazarus. 
has died. They have no idea what Jesus has in mind. They just know it's safe here, dangerous back there. That's enough for them. But you do understand, Jesus has never let danger or enemies dictate His actions. Neither must we. And that's the point, by the way, of the quick parable He gives them on the heels of this, verse 9 and 10. Lord, you know, they were just trying to kill us. Why would we go there? Jesus says, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. The light, the light. What is the light? What light is he talking about? Well, the light is him. The light is Christ, isn't it? He's just told us that back in John 9, verse 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To to walk with Christ is to walk in the light. To go without Christ is to be in darkness. And so these men, worried about their safety, he's telling them the safest place you can be in this world is wherever I, Christ, am. Wherever I, Christ, send you, that's the safe place to be. As long as you are with Christ, you will never stumble. It doesn't say you won't suffer. It doesn't mean you won't face danger or enemies. There will be plenty of both. But you are never safer than you are with when you are with Him. It's those who go on without Him who will stumble and fall. Without Him, listen, even your own bed is not safe apart from Him. And so our calling along with the disciples is to go on with Christ wherever He leads, to go do whatever it is He commands, knowing that being in the light with Him is the safest place we can be, whatever the danger may be. So Jesus tells them, come on, come on. It's time to go back. Which brings us to the third thing that we need to see this morning in this this narrative. And that is to understand then that the Lord, Jesus, knows the danger. He knows the pain. He knows the suffering that His calling will take us through. But He promises us that when He comes, it is He who brings life from the dead. Verses 11 to 16. After saying these things, he said to them, My friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe... Let us go to him. And Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. So the disciples are hesitant. They don't want to go. Jesus tells them why it's necessary to go. Verse 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep and I go to waken him. Now, typical disciples, and by the way, that means you and me too, typical of the disciples, they misunderstand Jesus. (laughs) Lazarus is sleeping. Well, Lord, if he's asleep, he's getting rest, he's going to get better, so no need for us to go risk our necks. And so Jesus tells them plainly, no, no, you misunderstand. Lazarus is dead. By the way, that, that 
stark, unavoidable reality awaits each one of us, doesn't it? One day, someone is going to say this about you or me. Many of you are, are younger than me. Much, many of you, some of you much younger than me. So, so one day, if the Lord tarries, you will hear the news, you know, Scott Lee is dead. It's going to happen. That day is coming. So what is our hope in the face of such death? Our, our hope in the face of such death is the promise of Christ's coming. Verse 11 gives me great hope. I know it's part of the narrative and I know it's talking about Jesus going to Lazarus. But as I read those words, I see something very wonderful. Do you see it? Lazarus, where is it? Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep in death, he means. But I am going to awaken him. (laughs) Two great truths anchor our souls in the face of death. First of all, The truth that for the Christian, death is compared to sleep. That's the term Jesus uses here for it. It's the same term Paul will use in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. They're asleep. But they're dead. Yes, but for the Christian, death is sleep. First of all, it's sleep because it's temporary. Our bodies will sleep in the ground or wherever it is they end up until Christ returns to raise them physically and reunite our souls to them. That doesn't mean our souls sleep. Don't take that error. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But our bodies will sleep There in the ground, our bodies will go into the grave as believers, but they're in the grave. They're merely waiting for Christ to return and wake them. Second, we can say that just as sleep does us no harm, for the Christian neither can death do us harm. It comes and it goes, and then we wake to a new resurrection morning. So it is with all who die in the Lord. For the Christian, death is like sleep. But you do understand that's for the Christian. That's not true for the non-believer. And we have to be honest about that one as well. This is not a general promise made to comfort each and every across the globe. It is a specific promise for those who die in the Lord. Because the reason that we will awaken is because we are united to Christ by faith. The life that is His, resurrected already in glory, is the life that He will give us. Uh, Dr. Uh, Richard Phillips in his commentary says, For those who die apart from Christ, nothing that we have said about death, not be, uh, death being merely sleep is true. Death is not beneficial. It is not temporary in this case. It does not lead to a new morning of everlasting light, but to the endless night of wrathful darkness. All hope of life after death is tied to Christ. And it is being in Christ that gives us hope that, as he says here, I'm coming to wake them. And that brings us to the second thing that gives us hope here, and that is that for the Christian, Christ's coming will mean life from the dead. Again, listen to his words. Verse 11, After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. 
In death he means, but I go to awaken him. Again, that verse fills me with such hope. Our friend Lazarus is asleep, but I've got a mission. I'm going to go wake him up. Do you understand one day Jesus is going to say that about all his friends who have fallen asleep in death? Trent, our friend Gene has fallen asleep. And Jesus one day is going to say, and I go to waken him. Thinking about my father, Sam has fallen asleep. And Jesus is one day going to turn and say to the angels in glory, but I'm going to waken him. Our friend Debbie has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go wake her up. I mean, that's the day that's coming. That's the hope. That's the promise. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 gives us the pictures. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The coming of Jesus means life from the dead. The end of this suffering and sorrow. John 5.25, Jesus already told us, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. They'll live. Why? Because when Christ speaks His powerful, life-giving Word, death is done and graves empty out. As we'll see later in this story. And that's when His glory will be most clearly seen. Right? We catch glimpses of it here and now. We're encouraged by those glimpses. But the full revelation of His glory waits for the day of His coming. And we hold fast to that now in these days of grief. So here's the thing. And let me bring you back to earth here. Between now and that day, there's going to be a lot of grief to go through. Between now and that day, there's a lot of pain we're going to endure. There's going to be a whole lot more partings and funerals and tears and cancer wards and calls to the ICU than we care to deal with. We're going to hear these sad, stark words more than once. Your friend whom you love is dead. That's when we have to be ready to look to Christ in faith and believe that He will keep the promise of His Word. That His delay is not a denial of His love, but an aspect of it as He works out all these things for our good who trust Him. In fact, look at the last thing He says to them here, verse 14 and 15. Then Jesus told them plainly, because they weren't getting it, Lazarus has died, and for your sake... I am glad that I was not there to heal him, he means, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Now at first blush, I don't know about you, but that almost sounds kind of cruel. Lazarus, your good friend is dead, and I'm glad. I mean, (laughs) what on earth, Jesus? But that's what we get if we don't listen to the whole statement, isn't it? Half verses uh, tend to mess us up. Listen to the whole verse. Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. So let's go to him. Believe what? 
do you catch what he's doing here? It's an echo of what he said back in verse 4. This illness doesn't terminate in death. It's going to lead ultimately to the glory of God. That this pain has a purpose. This grief will end in glory if you're willing to wait to see what I'm going to do. I mean, think about it. If Jesus had simply rushed to Lazarus' side and healed him, or for that matter, he could speak the word at a distance and heal. Why didn't he do that? If Jesus had just healed Lazarus, as he's done many times before, what would they have seen? Well, one more example of Jesus' power to heal. One more example of his power to stave off death before it comes, and that's nothing to sneeze at. But they've seen that before. And so it would have added nothing to their faith or their understanding of who He is. But what will they see now? This is what He's glad about. What will they see now? Not only will they now understand that Jesus could prevent death, they will now see that Jesus has the power to overcome death altogether. I mean, wow! Who else can do that? What power on earth can reverse and restore life in someone who's been dead four days. And the four days are significant. We'll get to them later. So Jesus says, I'm glad for you. I'm glad for you. Because despite the grief you're going through right now, I'm going to do something here that is so much greater and so much better that your faith is just going to reverberate. You're going to see who I am so much more clearly that at the end of the day, you're going to agree with me, this pain was worth it. Again, Jesus is more interested in growing your faith in Him than He is in preserving your comfort here. And He'll take you through the grief if that is what it takes so that you can see Him the way you need to see Him. Sort of an anchor verse for that is 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. So we don't lose heart, meaning through all of our sufferings and trials, we don't lose heart in Christ because though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction, meaning all the suffering on this in this world, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Amen. That's what He delights to give them here. That's what He wants them to see. And by the way, Christian, understand, this is what He wants you to see. For those who are in Christ, times of grief and loss are where He is most active in leading us to see His greater glory. As we follow Him through these times, He reveals Himself. We don't have to understand them. We just have to follow Him. That's why I love Thomas. So I can't, can't close. I'll close with this, but I can't close without looking at Thomas in verse 16. This is the first time we see Thomas in John's Gospel. Listen to what he says. Thomas is always thinking, always looking, always observing. So Thomas, hearing all this, called, Thomas called the twin. So he's somebody's twin. We don't know who the twin is. It's somebody out there. We, we don't get to meet them. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, So let us go that we may die with Him. Let us also go. Let's follow Him. Let's keep going. I don't know what's going on, but, but Jesus said we got to go, and it's dangerous, and we're probably all going to die. <laughs> but it, it, it sounds like it's going to be worth it. He doesn't understand, not at all. And so He just resigns Himself to go with Christ 
be- believing that it'll probably mean his death, kind of like Eeyore here. So, so why does he do that? Because he'd rather go with Christ to death than go anywhere else without him. Right? I mean, say what you will about Thomas. I know he's going to have some struggles at the end of John's Gospel, but this is the heart of a disciple. This is the heart of a disciple. Okay, Jesus is going that way. I don't get it. That's where I'm going. Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Following Jesus will mean your death. Right? Death to self. Death to earthly plans. Death to your self-willed life. And one day even physical death. But it's in following Him that you will find life from the dead, real life that can be had nowhere else, eternal life, eternal joy, eternal comfort, all all tied to Him. And so I commend to you Christ. Let's pray. Father, I'm speaking this this morning very aware that I am speaking to friends um, and others, Lord, that I've perhaps just met, but I'm speaking to a lot of people in this room whom I love, whom I've watched go through times of grief, and whom I know, as sure as my heart is beating at this moment, I will stand beside in times of grief and loss in days to come. Lord, here in this room, we ourselves, there are numbers of us, should you tarry, Should you allow us to remain in fellowship together that we will stand beside one another's graves and we will weep and we'll ask why. And we'll cry out and say, Lord, why didn't you intervene? We thought you would. And we'll struggle. But Lord, we will struggle with the promise that you love us, that you've shown it, that that you gave your life. Lord, what a thing even to think about. Thomas is worrying about this costing his life. He doesn't realize that going to Jerusalem is going to cost Christ his life. That it's, it's going to take the death of Jesus to resurrect Lazarus. And so, Lord, we come to the one who has already died and risen again. The one who stands at the Father's right hand. And who one day will call the name of everyone who has trusted in Him and raise us from these graves. Reunite us to all the people of God who have died for all eternity. And so, as Paul says, we will ever be with the Lord. God, give that faith and that confidence that come only through trusting Christ in His finished work. This we ask in Your magnificent name.